0: Bibles to John 15, John chapter 15, we studied the last couple of verses last week, we looked through the whole chapter on Wednesday, John chapter 15, and I'm going to read you verse 4, and then we're going to come back and cover a bunch of things here that Jesus says, I got stuck here. You know how that goes, many of you. You are studying or reading through a book and you get stuck in one place and you just have to kind of keep going over it. But there was one word, I gave this word on Wednesday night, one word that I think we need to hear. I needed to hear it. And the beauty of this one word is this is exactly what God does for us. We're saying He's a good, good Father. Well, I'll tell you what makes Him so good He's faithful, He is faithful. Now, stop and think about that. He is faithful to you. He is faithful to me. The Bible says, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. That's who He is. He is a faithful God. And no matter how many times in our lives we wander off or run away or hide away or deny even the Lord, He is faithful. He is faithful to forgive. And we depend and rely on that faithfulness. But what about us? What I want to look at this morning, and I know we're in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit, a series, I call it. We're listening to Jesus in the latter part of John talk about the Holy Spirit. We're doing five Sundays, and this is now the third Sunday, and you're going to see how this relates. But I'm so thankful that we have a faithful father because what we're going to talk about this morning I think it's one of the toughest things about being a follower of Jesus. I think this is one of the hardest things for you and for me about being Christians. And we need to look at it. So, verse four of John chapter 15, Jesus says, and here's the word abide. Abide. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Father, you and I have been back and forth on this one so much for years. You know my heart, Lord, my great desire to abide with you, to be fully fully focused on you, to keep my eyes on you and to walk with you. And, And some days, Lord, that goes really well. And then there's the rest of the time. And I think for most of us, Lord, it is that it is that relational walk of learning what it means to abide in you, what it means to be with you. Uh, Another word that we hear a lot, unfortunately, Lord, in church is distraction. And we are so easily distracted from our walk in the Spirit. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will give us practical wisdom for abiding. This morning, help us to think this through and to understand a little bit more about what abiding looks like, about the blessings of abiding in you, Lord. And just give us, Lord, spiritual revelation that we might be a people who abide and and individuals, Lord, who abide with you more fully in our lives. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. We like the sound of that. Love the sound of the invitation, especially when we're troubled. And remember, John 14, 15, and 16 is all about Jesus saying, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so when he says, come to me, I'm like, yes, I'm there. I want to come to you. And and many people understand and even welcome this this invitation of Jesus. Even the gospel call to become a believer and to repent and to confess, receive forgiveness of sin, eternal salvation. On the front end, that sounds really good. It's post-invitation that it starts to get difficult. It's not the receiving, it's the ones I've received that I tend to, or you tend to, or people tend to dogmatize, or ritualize, or trivialize what for God is a relationship, what he has invited us truly into. Most commonly, for one reason or another, it seems to be par for the course in the Christian life to struggle with abiding, or to neglect the abiding. So I want to abide in this chapter just a bit longer. we got to stay here. Because abide as the operative word Jesus begins to talk about. He uses this word over and over and over. Right here in, in a small handful of verses. He says abide. Abide in me. And we've been listening to Jesus. As I said, talk about the Holy Spirit. And we're fascinated by him, want to understand more of the Holy Spirit, especially because he is so present and is such a dynamic in our lives as followers of Jesus. And we've covered six promises so far. Let me go over those with you again. The Holy Spirit is our God-strong helper. That word that Jesus uses, parakleton, that is translated helper or comforter, it means advocate, strengthener. He is our strength. Secondly, he is Given, or I said gifted, forever. Once the Holy Spirit comes to you, Jesus says that he may be with you forever. What a promise. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is genuine truth. Jesus calls him three times in this section, the spirit of truth. Fourthly, he generates remembrance of all Jesus did and said. You remember the things of Jesus because the Holy Spirit is telling you. Because he's reminding you, because he is bringing it to mind. Fifthly, we saw that Jesus grants us peace by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. He brings peace to our lives, a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And number six, the Holy Spirit is our gospel witness. He's the power truly in you, in me, to testify, as we talked about last week. But these six promises and more to come next week and the following, Lord willing, these promises are only operative as we abide. They only truly function in us as we abide. I can have a beautiful brand new Tesla and it's only going to operate if I get in it. See, that's all you have to do with a Tesla, just get in. You don't even have to turn it on. It just turns on. It's really weird. It only operates as I get in it and drive it. If it sits in the garage, it does me no good whatsoever. If I say I have all of these promises of Jesus, that's wonderful. But if I don't abide, then what use are they? If you don't abide with him, you won't get them. I mean, it's very simple. This is how a relationship works. So this morning, call it a pause in the promises because interestingly, in essence, that's what Jesus does here. He's laying out these promises. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's giving them all manner of reason not to be troubled. And in the midst of this wonderful teaching on the Holy Spirit, Jesus pauses. And he focuses suddenly not on the Spirit, but on those who receive him. In relationship with him, he focuses on those who... To abide. So again, it's one thing to come to Jesus, it's another thing to abide in him. Now, to set the stage, Jesus begins in chapter 15. And obviously the chapter breakdowns weren't here originally, so we say he begins, but we'll we'll start right there. He picks up in chapter 15 talking about the vine, the seventh I am statement of Jesus in this gospel. I am the true vine. And we looked at it Wednesday night from a Hebrew perspective. And by the way, I would strongly recommend that you pay attention to that. Because there are some problematic things in these early verses of chapter 15 that many people have taken wrongly or have misunderstood. And I encourage you to go back if you haven't and listen to this. Because he talks about, I am the true vine, and gives this beautiful word picture, which Jesus is so good at. of of being a vine and you and I being his branches. The vine and the branches is the graphic illustration. It's the backdrop of this entire concept of abiding. So keep that in mind. Like a vine, a primary vine with branches coming off of it, and we are the branches, and he is the vine. And what this portrays for us is a, a nutritive connection to Jesus... A fruitful cultivation by Jesus, a sweet confidence for you and for me just to be branches. Can you be a branch? doesn't sound that exciting. Sometimes I don't need exciting. I just need what I can do. I can be a branch. I I can do that. Sometimes I'm, I'm about as smart as a branch. I can do branch. We are the branches through whom Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, accomplishes his work. So keep that vine picture in mind, but we go on and listen to what Jesus says. Again, verse four, abide in me and I in you. And the word abide, we talked about way back in chapter one. The word abide is menyo, M-E-N-O. If you're trying to follow along, jot down the Greek words, menyo, abide. It means to abide, it means to stay, it means remain. Now, when I first mentioned this word several months ago in this gospel, I I told you it appears 112 times in the New Testament. Menyo, abide, stay, remain. 112 times, half of which are in John's gospel. So this is a word that John uses a lot, that the Spirit really inspired John to to pin over and over and over. The very first time we hear it in John's gospel He's talking about, actually, he's quoting John the Baptist. And he makes a clear connection between abiding and the Spirit of the Lord, which is why this is so appropriate right in the middle of talking about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 32, John the Baptist testified, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And the word remained is menyo, abide. He abided upon Jesus John the Baptist said, I did not recognize him. That is, he did not recognize Jesus was the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding, remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I begin there because that is vitally important understanding, abiding. You would not even be able to abide in Jesus without the Holy Spirit. He is the power. He is the connection through whom and by which we abide. And in and through Jesus, we see God's intention for his spirit to abide in us. We've talked about this before. I love the truth that not only is Jesus the perfect representation of God for us, he is also the perfect representation of man in relationship to God. That is how you and how I are supposed to live, how we can live. We look at Jesus and say, that's the model, that's the pattern. He's the perfect human. He's the ideal. And so Jesus, in this ideal, note this, back in verse 10 of chapter 14, listen to what he says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus exemplifies in himself In the flesh, what it looks like to have the Spirit of God abiding in you. Which is the whole purpose, I believe, for the baptism of Jesus. He said it was to fulfill all righteousness. Which is doing the right thing before you, before me. He didn't need it to be righteous. But Jesus in his baptism showed us what you and I look like after ours. Or in ours. That we are baptized and we receive, as Peter said, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the very baptism of the Holy Spirit itself is a picture, again, of the Spirit coming upon you to abide with you and in you, and we see that in Jesus. So he gets baptized, he comes out of the water, and we graphically see the Holy Spirit descend upon him and remain, menyo, abide, stay with Jesus. Does that mean Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before? Not like he did after. Wait, I'm confused. Isn't Jesus God? yes. Was there ever a time when Jesus wasn't God? No. So, what are you saying? I'm saying that the Holy Spirit, remember, we talked about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three members of the Trinity, who are all absolutely equal, and yet they are different. They're absolutely one, but they are three persons of the Godhead, which is a mind blowing concept, but it's very biblical in understanding who God, singular, is. He is three persons. And so the person of the Son, born into this world by the power of the Holy Spirit, but then the Holy Spirit comes upon the Son. The person of the Holy Spirit joins up now with the Son at his baptism, which is why I believe you don't see any miracles of Jesus before the baptism. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. So he empties himself, he goes through this period of life and then in his baptism the Holy Spirit comes and the word is remains upon him, abides. What's marvelous about that is that is the promise for you. That's the promise for me. The Holy Spirit wants to come and to abide upon me, in me, with me. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another of the same kind, but the paracleton. He's going to give you another advocate, another helper, that he may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He comes and he abides upon Jesus. Now, John gives several other instances of abiding before we get to chapter 14, 15, and 16. John chapter six, verse 56. Jesus said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's why we take communion. It's why week in, week out. Jesus is, yes, pointing ahead, talking about that coming observance that he laid in at the last Passover and so we do this as often as we meet to call and encourage us to abide come to the father's table come and feed at the table of the lord and be reminded that we abide in him bible says as often as you do this do so in remembrance of me it's all about abiding and so jesus has given us this it's not a ritual He's given us this observance to remember him to think about him to pause in the midst of all of our insanity and simply abide. I love that about the Lord. John 8:31. <coughs> Excuse me, John 8:31. He says, "If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine." The word continue, abide. How how do I maintain this abiding in Jesus? Well, come to the table. That's one way to do it. Another way is simply be in his word. Abide. The Bible becomes a source of my abiding. John 12, 46. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will, will not abide, will not remain in darkness. So Jesus just poses the opposite potentiality. You can abide in the Lord, you can abide in him and he in you, or you can abide in the darkness. That's that's the very simple light versus dark choice. Now, someone might say, okay, so you're saying that if I don't abide in Jesus, if I'm not, not a Christian, I'm in the dark? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, darkness... can express everything. I mean, it doesn't just have to be sin and wickedness and evil, although it is. That's the end game of darkness. But darkness also expresses confusion, cluelessness, a lack of discernment or understanding. And to abide outside of Jesus apart from the light is to abide in a certain degree of cluelessness and lack of understanding and lack of discernment which is why people make some of the decisions they make in this world. You think, how can you do that? That's so foolish. They're not abiding. They're abiding in the darkness rather than the light. Jesus makes that clear. So my question for you this morning is where do you abide? Where do you abide? I don't know if you noticed, but starting off, we didn't start with a pithy story or or some little funny joke or some puns. I'm not into that this morning. This is much more just brass tacks, I just want to talk about abiding in the Lord, and to encourage you to abide in the Lord, so I'm going to give you a bunch of verses (laughs) about that, is that why you're so quiet, did you look at the verse list and go, no, no, it's Father's Day, for crying out loud, I got grilling to do, a lot of those I'm just going to give you, they're there for a list for you to refer back to, you'll see this in just a moment, But to abide, do you abide in the Lord? I mean, ask yourself, even as we go through this, where do you abide? (coughs) What does this look like in your life? What is abiding? If I say to you, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, how does that play out for you? What's that look like for you? What's your daily abiding level? Well, I'll let you measure that. That's between you and God. But some things to consider. Jesus continues. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So four things to note about abiding in Jesus. And here's number one. The abiding life produces fruit. The abiding life produces fruit. I can almost guarantee there are going to be some things I'm going to say here in a few minutes that someone's going to go, someone's going to want to feel guilty, please don't. Someone's going to want to feel lesser than, or like they're just not doing the job they're supposed to do, please don't. If you feel that way, you need to listen all the way through to the end. But the abiding life produces fruit. Even by saying that, there are some who would sit there going, I don't produce nothing. There are other people who are far more fruitful than I am. I'm not not bearing anything. This is just an absolute. In fact, all four of the things I'm going to tell you are absolutes if you're following Jesus. The abiding life produces fruit. It can't not produce fruit. If you are abiding in Jesus, you cannot fail to produce fruit it's absolutely certain now the word fruit in the greek is karpos karpos and it can be translated offspring or produce or even benefit And real quickly, I want to take you through. The Bible gives us this visual picture of fruit and fruitfulness. Again, not to guilt trip us into what we're not doing, but to describe something utterly out of our branches. This is something beyond you. This is something beyond me. If there is fruit being born, it's not because I did it. And that's the thing to understand about abiding in Jesus. If you're abiding in Jesus, there's going to be fruit and you're going to go, huh, how'd that happen? I didn't do that. No, you didn't. Because apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. I love the picture. Uh, You could even just say, fruit happens. There's a t-shirt. Fruit happens. (laughs) When you're in Christ. But, fruit only happens if you abide in the vine if you're not abiding in the vine fruit will not happen so Jesus is so clear about this now I'm going to throw a whole bunch of fruit at you so, so be careful for this the first time we see fruit in the New Testament just to understand a little more maybe what the Bible means by fruit I asked my sons the other day what do you guys think it means to bear fruit and David just was like I have no idea even what you're talking about dad I'm like okay come Sunday through the New Testament, this is what fruit is. Number one, first time we see the word fruit, it is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, John the Baptist again says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is a a natural outgrowth of fruit in repentance. The fruit of repentance. What do you mean? A life changed just looks different. It does. If someone comes to Christ, claims to repent, but there's zero change in life, did they really repent? Did it ever even happen? There has to be fruit from it. And there will be fruit from it, from the person, in the person who has turned away from the old life and to Jesus in the new life. You know that's what repentance is. It's turning away from and turning to. It's both. It's rejecting the old and accepting the new in Jesus. And if you do that, there's going to be fruit. Can't help it. The fruit of repentance. But Jesus also then describes what we would call the fruit of discernment. The fruit of discernment. This begins to be a part of the Christian walk, the Christian life. If you look over in Matthew, if you'd like to flip over there, you can, just two two or three books to the left. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus gives some really clear warning that we need even within the church. And, and especially in these last days. Jesus says, Matthew seven fifteen, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, hopefully not in gray hoodies, But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits, the fruit of discernment. Whatever teacher you listen to must bear good fruit, or don't listen. If there's bad stuff coming out of that ministry, out of that teacher, out of that, that process or program, don't pay attention look for the fruit it's it's the number one way how you can tell if you're listening someone says hey this guy online is a great teacher go listen to him look for the fruit what is the fruit of the ministry what's coming out of that that's incredibly important but it is not only teachers the abiding life bears good fruit it's how we know that we're abiding it's how we discern that we are abiding in the lord ourselves Again, if you look and act and talk the same as those who do not abide in Jesus, are you abiding? Can you really say you're abiding? If if you bear the same as the world, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And that should be convicting. It's convicting for me. In the parable of the sower, we come to another fruit That we understand. I'm not gonna read the whole parable, but it's the fruit of reception. The fruit of reception, or or you could say good soil. So the fruit of repentance, the fruit of discernment, the fruit of reception. Matthew 13, 23, and Jesus said, The one on whom the seed was sown, and the seed, he very clearly says, is the word of God. The one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So there are different amounts of fruit that are produced. Some people in their lives produce a whole lot of fruit. Others just produce a little bit the amount is not not what matters, listen Jesus is going to work in you and through you in me and through me and he's going to produce based on how he decides to produce, you may bear one fruit in your life but you're bearing a fruit or you may bear all kinds of fruit and the one fruit person is looking at the hundred fruit person and going that's not fair and Jesus is saying has nothing to do with either one of them, I'm the one bearing the fruit are you with me? I'm the vine, you're the branches. You bear what I give you to bear. And in this process, there is the fruit of reception. He says in Matthew 13, 23, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. In Mark 4, 20, he says, this is the one who hears the word and accepts it. And in Luke 8, 15, he says, these are the ones who heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. You could say abide, abide. This all describes listening with receptivity rather than listening in rebellion or cynicism, and sometimes people do. Sometimes people sit in church week after week after week, arms crossed going, yeah, no, I don't buy that. I'm so, I just don't believe that. Maybe you've done it. Oh maybe not week after week but what about the believer who who begins to take things with a cynical view it's the good heart that receives the seed it's the open heart that bears the good fruit the fruit of reception and then there's the fruit of the Spirit. You all know the fruit of the Spirit. Those nine variations, those nine flavors of the one fruit, the fruit that the Spirit bears, but nine flavors of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, Galatians 5:23. against such things there is no law, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So again, the only way to abide in Christ is by the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not abiding in Jesus. Which is why the Holy Spirit teaching of Jesus is so vital. He's the one by whom all these different attributes of love, joy, peace, etc., are produced, the fruit of the Spirit. There's then the fruit of sanctification. The fruit of sanctification. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Now, if you were listening closely, you'd have to ask, where's the fruit? You said the word fruit. I didn't hear the word fruit in that verse. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. The word benefit is karpos, fruit. It is the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of a sanctified life. Your life is being altered into the direction of Jesus throughout your life. I wish I had understood this better as a 20-year-old because in my 20s, I thought I just need to get there and then I can coast. There's no coasting. There is no coasting. And at 57, I'm realizing how much I have to be sanctified, how much work God still has to do in my heart. And trust me, we don't want to go there. It's dark. It's not dark. It's light because of Jesus. But man, the stuff I have to deal with and the stuff I have to think through, stuff I've been processing just this week, oh my goodness, I need the Holy Spirit And I need the fruit of sanctification. Then there's the fruit of the gospel. Colossians chapter one, verse five, as you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. I love that. That is such good news. That means all we gotta do is just speak the gospel. God will bear the fruit. The gospel's going out and in and of itself, it is still bearing fruit in this world. It is constantly, Paul says, bearing fruit and increasing even as in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Do you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still bearing fruit in you? That the good news itself is still generating and bearing fruitfulness in your life. This is an ongoing thing. The gospel continues to work on your sanctification. So we have the fruit of the gospel and the fruit of sanctification before that. Number seven, if you're keeping track of these, the fruit of righteousness I said the abiding life bears fruit. Well, the fruit of righteousness is one. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. By the way, the fruit of righteousness, I think along with the fruit of sanctification, these are often developed by pruning. These often come by pruning, as Jesus describes in John 15, verses 2 and 3. Those who, who are not bearing any fruit, he says, the Father prunes them. And we talked about this Wednesday night, that there are two definitions, two understandings from that word prune. It actually translates cleans or washes. And so a, a branch that is not bearing fruit, he doesn't just cut it, he washes it. He cleanses it so that it can bear even more fruit. But this pruning also can be the clipping off of, of, of dead twigs that happen to be on my branch. And if you have dead twigs in your life, things that you've done or are doing, and they're really not producing anything. They're just kind of hanging on. Well, the Father's going to come, and he's going to prune those. And when he does, it's not necessarily going to feel good. It's like clipping your fingernails a little too short. I I had to explain to my kids, what does it mean to cut me to the quick? It means you cut your fingernails so short that when you grab something, you go, (laughs) ah. And sometimes the Father prunes us very close to the nerves Sometimes there's a little pain in the pruning. In fact, Hebrews 12, says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So pruning brings about righteousness. If you're being pruned, praise God. He's making you more Righteous. And then there's the fruit of thanksgiving, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. You know someone who's abiding because they're thankful. And by the way, if you're struggling with abiding, you might start by just being thankful. Because thankfulness produces in us. Thanking God when you wake in the morning, thanking him throughout the day for what he's doing, this will produce fruit in you, the fruit of thanksgiving. And then number nine, the fruit of wisdom. James 3.17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fruit of righteousness also has to do with the fruit of wisdom because the more righteous you are, the more wise you will be. It is all connected, part of the process. And all of these, as you go through the New Testament, and I just pulled these out, are pictures. These are fruit of the abiding life. What you can look for in the life of someone who is abiding in Christ, the fruit of repentance, of discernment, of reception, the fruit of the Spirit, of sanctification, of the gospel, of righteousness, of thanksgiving, of wisdom. Are these, are any of these present in you? Are they manifest in me? Is there a measure of them? See, again, the abiding life produces fruit. It must produce fruit. Otherwise, this word is an error. If I abide in him, I will bear fruit. I will produce fruit. Why is that? Look at verse 8. John 15, verse 8. Got to get back there. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And prove to be my disciples. You and I, we are obvious branches of the vine by the fruit that we bear. But listen, I said this Wednesday night, you got to hear this. No fruitful vine strains to bear fruit. You, You just don't hear it. You will never hear a vine branch groaning to produce fruit walk through any vineyard you will not hear we can do it come on it doesn't work that way what do you hear in a vineyard? silence what do the branches do? they just allow themselves to be used the nutrients the waters the cleansing everything flows through the branch and the fruit begins to bear and the branch is just connected to the vine that's it the kind of straining that sometimes we see, you know what? Strained groaning does not bring glory to God. It focuses on me. If I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm going, oh man, it's tough. We're going to get through this. Come on, we can make this happen. Where's the attention? It's on the one who's straining and groaning. You watch a weightlifter and they pick up the barbells and they start to push them and you're going wow this guy's really putting in all the effort and if he can get the bar above his head you're like wow amazing great that guy's a strong man yeah all the effort's his all the attention's on him in our Christian lives we bear fruit and we don't even know it in our Christian lives, when fruit is born in us, it brings glory to God, not to us. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the abiding life just bears fruit supernaturally, bears fruit because we abide in him. And as that fruit is popping on the branches, connected to the vine, God gets the glory. So, so that's the first one, the abiding life. The abiding life bears fruit. It must bear fruit or it's not abiding. Listen to what Jesus says now in verse six, John 15:6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Quick note, he is not talking about believers. He's talking about those who do not abide in him. If anyone does not abide in me. So there's a choice to be made. You can't abide unless you've been born again. So it doesn't make any sense to say I abide if you haven't given your life to Jesus, right? It only applies, this these these branches taken away and, and burned, it only applies to those who do not abide. It does not apply, good news, it does not apply to weak or currently fruitless branches. See, if a branch is fruitless, he'll do what he needs to do to prune it, to cleanse it, to cause it, to lift it up, to cause it to bear more fruit. If it's weak He will strengthen it. This applies what Jesus says in verse 6 to those who refuse connection to Jesus, who say, I'll have nothing to do with Jesus, the true vine. But he says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Number two, I love this, the abiding life praise the word the abiding life praise the word this is so practical for you and for me the abiding life praise the word now too many christians are uncomfortable praying is that you don't raise your hand too many christians are uncomfortable praying i I, i've had a few comments you know on on wednesday nights right now this is what we're doing And I don't know if this is going to attract more people or drive more people away. But on Wednesday nights, we're studying through the scriptures. And at the end, we all pray together. And then we break into prayer groups. Everybody in the auditorium, whoever's here, in in groups of two or three or four. And you just talk to each other for a few minutes and and pray for each other. And and that's it. Very simple. And I've already had a few people say, I don't like that. I don't like this. Now Now you're making us pray in front of other people. I'm not making you do anything. You don't have, there's the door don't have to be here you're making us do it too many christians are uncomfortable praying and if that's you you need to ask yourself why is this a problem why is this a problem if i'm standing in a group of people and i have a dear friend there or or maybe someone i'd just like to share with them about i have no problem sharing with them If I'm standing with a group of believers in the foyer, having fellowship and a cup of of coffee, I have no problem interacting. And granted, some are a little more introverted, but even if you're introverted, one or two people. You have no problem talking to. See, we have made prayer such a religious, such a high and holy thing. And by the way, it is high and holy. But we've made it such a religious, ritualistic thing that people are uncomfortable I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I should do it out loud. I feel like such an idiot. Why do you feel like an idiot when you're talking to your father? He's a good father. And he loves to hear from his children. And the abiding life is not going to have problem praying. And I think the problem is that too many Christians feel ill-equipped. Well, I haven't really been trained on how to pray right. Don't worry about it. Too many Christians are embarrassed. Stop it. This is Jesus. You know him. He knows you. Too many Christians are uncertain of how to pray. So let me help you with that this morning. The abiding life praises the word. Praise the word. What do you mean? This is not about making praying automatons, praying robots who speak the same thing over and over and repeat it back. This is why we're not a liturgical church. This is why our practice on a Sunday is I don't say something and then have you repeat it back to me and we do the same thing every week, week in and week out. Some churches do that. God bless them. This is about being real with Jesus. And the abiding life prays the word. This is absolutely key to an effective, productive prayer life, which is part of your abiding. Listen to what Jacob says in the book of James. If that's confusing, I always feel like I have to explain that now. There is no James. You know that. It's it's Yaakov throughout the Bible. Anytime you see the name James, King James wanted his name in the Bible, so they put it there. It's Jacob. It's Jacob. So actually, the book of James is the book of Jacob. There, I've explained it again. And I probably will every time we come to the book of James, Jacob. Chapter 5 of that particular book. Verse 16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And some believers go, well, that's my problem. I'm not a righteous man. I'm not a righteous woman. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are in Jesus. He has made you righteous. So let's just dispense with that one right up front. But he goes on and says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So prayer is a part of fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of prayer. But the abiding life, praise the word. Now, you are righteous, we've already explain that through Jesus right but someone might say yeah but I'm no Elijah okay if you've ever felt lonely if you've ever felt fearful depressed or anxious so did Elijah in fact Yaakov says Elijah was a man just like us a man with a nature just like ours. We look back and we romanticize and we say, oh, Elijah, the great prophet. And he was a great prophet. You know why? Because the spirit of God was on him. He was a branch connected to the vine. That's why he was great. That's why the things he did were remarkable. It wasn't because of Elijah. And he could tell you that if he was here right now. It wasn't me. If it was up to me, I'd still be hiding in a cave. That's Elijah. Elijah. If it's up to you, maybe you'd say, I would never pray in front of other people. Yeah, but it's not up to you. He was just like us. Along with being an absolutely potent prophet, he struggled with loneliness and fear and depression. But his prayers were powerful because his righteousness was from God. And so is yours so so you want to increase effective prayerfulness the abiding life prays the word and it is the most productive way that you can pray and let's, let's get to this praying his word it prays his will if you pray the word of God you're praying the will of God so if you struggle with prayer let me give you some advice here and here's where I'm going to run through a whole bunch of verses and I'm, I'm, don't worry about jotting them down just get the list Okay, it's on the list I would say start by praying the Psalms. Just, start, just open up Psalms and start to pray through the Psalms. It will dramatically change the way you pray. And when you're done with that, move on to the prayers of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is easy to remember. It's chapter 9 of all three books. Daniel chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. Read those prayers. Pray those prayers. They're remarkable prayers by men of great faith. And then go and pray the prayers of Paul. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. I hope you're writing all of these down. (laughs) And when you're done praying the prayers of Paul, go to the prayers of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Great prayer. And if you really want to get wild with the prayer, pray Revelation Pray Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and verse 11. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and and, and verses 12 and 13. Again, this is all up there. Pray Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. And let this infuse and affect your prayer life. Pray the prayers of Jesus. I'm not sure how to pray. Go to Matthew chapter 6, and just pray the Lord's Prayer. And let it be the outline of, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but let it be the outline for how you pray. Do you realize that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter six, every line is is like a heading for an outline? Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. I could pray about that for half an hour. Give us this day our daily bread. Man, I I could expand on that. Everything Jesus says, just pray the Lord's prayer. Pray what they call the high priestly prayer, and we're going to come to it in a few weeks, Lord willing. John 17. Pray John 17 alongside Jesus. This will change the way you pray. Or, hey, if you're motivated, just pray John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Just pray it through. Pray the word, and you will produce the fruit. Let me rephrase that. Pray the word, and he will produce the fruit. And you will be an effective prayerful branch pray the word the abiding life prays the word and you'll hear it you'll hear it from other believers and man don't compare yourself when you do hear it don't be one who sits there and you're praying in a group of people and someone's praying and all kinds of verses are coming out their mouth and you're sitting there going well I don't know anything stop it (laughs) first of all just start by being real with God but then pray what you know And if if you're in prayer and, and Bible verses come to mind, pray them. And if you'd like them to come to mind more often, like I said, go through all these prayers. Just start praying. Pray the word. The abiding life does so. But now Jesus comes to the greatest of all the attributes of abiding. Number three, the abiding life practices love. Perhaps the most difficult for us as believers. The abiding life practices love. Verse nine, Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me and I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will. Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Eight times, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, agape. So he's not mincing words. He's not picking different Greek words for love. He's just using the one, agape, unconditional love. We know the love that he's talking about. Eight times, love one another, love one another. The Father's loved me, so I have loved you. Love one another the way I love the Father. Let that be the mark of your love, unconditional love. The sad thing in church is when someone wrongs us, we leave rather than love. Sometimes we don't leave the church, we just leave the relationship. It's easier that way. Well, guess what? Love is hard. Love is difficult. Unconditional love takes me way beyond my flesh into a place where I love like Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross, you know what? He died for me when I was still a sinner. Same with you. That's tough. That's not easy. That's agape. And he says again and again, this is the standard for my people. You love. You love regardless. And if it's difficult for you to love, good. Stick around and love some more. Love even more. Pray the word, produce the fruit. Practice love. By the way, did you notice that he inverted what he said in the upper room just just a few steps before, just a few minutes before, In John 14, 15, what Jesus said was, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And now he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. Trying to understand this a little bit. What's the difference? Well, there is a difference. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, He's talking about the consequence of love. The consequence of love. That is, keeping his commandments is the result of loving him. I love him, so I keep his commandments. That's what happens. If you love Jesus, you're going to keep his commandments. It's wonderful, it's easy, it's part of the deal. I love you, Lord. You do what he says, because you love him. So it's the consequence of love. John 15, verse 10, listen to me, this is important, is the cultivation Of that love. I want to love him so I can keep his commandments. Jesus says, Keep his commandments and you'll love him. That's how it works. It's the cultivation of love that results in abiding in his love. You want to love him more? Keep his commandments more. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you're going to love me all the more. If you want to abide, you have got to agape. If you want to abide, you've got to agape. And this is what we see going away in the world. This week, uh, on Wednesday, Gallup.com released two polls. Some of you may have seen these. The first poll was dealing with American belief in God. It's the lowest percent of Americans believing in God since 1944. Since they really started keeping these polls, the, the trend line is just down, And it's not surprising. I'm not surprised. And we're, by the way, not talking about the church in the world. We're just talking about belief in God in America, but the trend line is steadily down. In 1944 through 1947, when they measured this, when they asked polled Americans, do you believe in God? 98%. 98% believed in God. By 2011, this may surprise you, it had dropped, but only to 92%. 2011, 92% of people polled believed in God. And then from 2013, it dropped all the way to 2017 down to 87%. In 2022, it has dropped to 81%. So that's a precipitous drop from, you know, the trend line has been mostly kind of like this, and all of a sudden it kind of has dipped substantially in the last three or four years. And by the way, 18 to 29-year-olds have the lowest belief in God coming in at 68%. Now, when I tell you those percentages, you might say, well, 81% is not bad. 81% is belief in God or a higher power. That has nothing to do with Jesus. It's just, do you believe there's a God? It's very generic. And even among very generic beliefs, 18 to 29-year-olds, 68% have a generic belief in God. That is stunning. That means a third of 18 to 29-year-olds in America do not believe there's a God at all. And only, by the way, 42% say God actually hears prayer and responds. So in this country, it has dropped below 50% who even think God listens when we pray. Which is this, not surprising to me. I'm reading the numbers going, yeah, actually those are higher than, than I would have expected. This is why America is in the state that it's in. It is not politics. It is prayer. Okay, it, it, it's, it's Jesus. That's why the country is in the state that it's in. And that's not a swipe, by the way, at political persuasions. Uh, I I could talk to you about liberals on this list. It drops even lower. I don't know why. Well, I I could make some guesses, but I'm not going to this morning. (laughs) Compared with a 20-year trend line, this is interesting to me, a record high 50% of Americans rate the overall state of moral values as poor. There's there's a, a connection here. Faith in God going down, moral values dropping. Uh, 50% of Americans say the state of morality, moral values in the country is poor, half of America. Another 37% say it's only fair. So put that together 87% of Americans say that moral values in America are poor to fair. That's not good. And people recognize it. We see it. We look around the world and go, this is, <laughs> this is not the way it should be. Of course, then in that same poll, 1% think that the state of moral values is excellent. 12% rate it as good. So there are 13% of Americans who just aren't paying attention. But not only do Americans feel grim about the current state of morality in our nations, 78% believe that moral values are getting worse. And on top of that, when asked to rank the greatest concern with moral values, the number one problem, just, this is just a, a poll of people, but the number one problem people said with moral values was, get this, consideration of others consideration of others are you surprised jesus said of the last days that because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold do you see maybe why abiding requires agape why if we're really going to abide with jesus in these last days we have to learn what it means to love unconditionally because this world is not going to do it and the more we see lawlessness increase which has been dramatic in the last few years in America, the more we're going to see love decrease. It's an exact opposite. And the counter to all of this lack of faith and this downturn of of morality in our country, the, the counter is love. It's agape. We abide in him, we abide in the vine, and we love like the vine, even if it wouldn't be my natural way of doing things. Man, my natural man doesn't always want to love. And I won't even use the silly examples of being cut off when driving. My natural man does not want to love when someone has personally hurt me. I don't want to love that person. No way. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. Yeah, guess what, Rick? Neither of you. We love because he loved us first. I love because God loves me. And it's not an option to agape. In fact, he goes so far as to define love in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus commanded love. He embodied love. He defined it on the cross. So he does all the teaching we need to have, and then he teaches all the way up to saying greater love. This is the greatest love, and then that weekend he does it. He reveals the greatest love. And why did he die? Because we were a lost world and he knew it. That's why he came. He invites us to salvation by faith in him. And then he says to you and he says to me, Abide in my love. Abide in my love. This is absolutely the key to practicing love abiding in his love. And if you're struggling with loving anybody in your life, abide in his love. Don't look to the person to see how you can fix them. Don't even look to your own heart to see how you can make yourself somehow love this undeserving, unlovable person. You look to Jesus. You look to the love that he has for you, and you you take nutrition from that love. You take power from that love, and then you turn around and you love that unlovely person this is absolutely key do you understand do we know how much he loves each one of us that's again why we come to the tables we know love by this 1 john 3:16 that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and that's agape so the abiding life practices love The abiding life prays the word and the abiding life produces fruit. And number four, fourth and final one, the abiding life, and some of you are gonna struggle with this one, the abiding life is permeated with joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be made full. And you need to hear this, Jesus says, my joy. That my joy, may be in you. Alfred says, not joy concerning me, not joy derived from me or my joy over you, but my joy, properly speaking, the joy of the Son in the consciousness of the love of God. It is his joy that empowers my joy. But you know what? This is a really strange, strange time for Jesus to say such a thing. I'm telling you all these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full? He's on the way to Gethsemane. I mean, right now, as he says this, as he speaks about his joy being in them, they are on the march to Gethsemane where within the hour he's going to be sweating blood in the worst distress and sorrow of his entire life. That's the context of Jesus saying, My joy. Which tells us something about joy, doesn't it? It has nothing to do with circumstance, it has nothing to do with incident. His joy, Jesus says, My joy is essential joy. It is eternal joy. It has nothing to do with what's going on around me. It has everything to do with who he is and my connection to him. I abide in the vine, and my life is permeated by his joy. That's how it works. Proverbs seventeen twenty two: "...a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones." Or Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. And made full is, it's the word plerothe, which means fulfilled or completed, It's used by the Greeks to describe a glass that has been filled up, not just to the brim, but it's filled up and it's overflowing. It's so full you can't put any more in. That's plerothe. That your joy may be made full. Made full of what? Of my joy, Jesus says. You know what that means? That means, literally, you could say that your joy may be fulfilled. This is what we were created for. His joy. Listen to me. This is why you were made. This is why he breathed life into you and put you on the planet and then called you by his blood to salvation. This is our, our purpose is to know his joy, to be completed and filled up with his joy, to be fulfilled. Well, how do I get that? Abide in him. Abide in him that his joy might fill you. And someone will say, man, I'm, I'm just I'm feeling useless in my life. Fruitless. Abide. Why? Well, I, I don't know how to pray, someone else says. Abide. I'm struggling with loving someone. Abide. I don't know how to get out of this depression. Abide. Is the greatest life hack I know <laughs> To abide in Jesus, there is nothing more practical, nothing more functional or hands-on in this troubled life than abiding. But I'll tell you what the problem is, it's a daily decision. Or as Paul said, it's a walk. Galatians 5:25 again, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, I have to think about these things. When I know I'm going to teach them, I have to think about, okay, so if I'm going to say that the, the key to coming out of depression is abiding in Jesus, I have to know that there's going to be someone who says, that doesn't work. Because I struggle with depression, and you don't understand depression, Pastor. If I'm going to say, I know someone, if I say, you got to abide in Jesus and you can love anyone, everyone, I know someone's going to say, "Yeah, you haven't been hurt like I've been hurt. I have to know, is this this reality here? Is this true? That simply by abiding in him, if I'm fruitless, I can become useful? That by abiding in him, if I'm uncertain how to pray, suddenly my prayer life becomes fruitful and full and good? If I'm abiding in him, I can love people, and if I'm abiding in him, I'm going to actually come out of depression? Come on, pastor. That's just Sunday morning preaching stuff, isn't it? No, abide in him, and all of this is true. All of this. Well, I just don't accept it. Then you won't have it. I reject it. Then you're not abiding. This is not a measure of how good a Christian or how bad a Christian you are, how strong a follower or how faithless you are. That's not what we're talking about here. I am giving you practical, biblical advice for how to deal with all of this, how to not be troubled in a very troubling world. And the advice is abide. Because when you abide in Jesus, even things like depression lift When you abide in Jesus, suddenly you have the ability to love whereas you did not before you turned to him. It is not God's will for anyone to live a meaningless, spiritless, loveless, bummed out life. That's not of the Lord. He says, abide in me. Abide in me. He is the prescription for all of the ills of this world. And so much more, he's the prescription for the power to walk as his people. Abide. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He'll quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Nehemiah 8:10, again, do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. My joy, that's a joy infectious. That's a joy that gets into you and you can't get it out unless you stop abiding. And Jesus said in John 17:13, These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves so if you feel like you're missing his joy abide abide in him there's no shortcuts to a good relationship is there it takes abiding psalm 16 in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand there are pleasures forever and the bible would not say it if it wasn't true first peter 1 18 or 1 8 though you have not seen him you love him And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is what the abiding does. Your part, my part in all of this is not to generate or groan or grunt or strain to cause these things to happen. Our part is simply to abide. If you abide in Jesus, you will produce fruit. If you abide in Jesus, you'll find yourself praying the word. You'll find yourself practicing love. And you will be permeated with his joy if you abide as you abide. And when he finally calls, he's not going to find a bunch of groaning, straining branches. Instead, he'll find us abiding in the vine. And we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, Jesus, so much information, so much to think through, but Lord, just teach us to abide in you, to find our rest in you. Lord, I've been talking for an, over an hour here, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm still wondering, is the point made? What does it take, Lord, to abide, and it's just spending time with you? It's being with you. As we are right now in this prayer, we are with you. And it's absolutely true, Lord, that when I am with you, all the difficulties of life fade into the background. When I'm with you, and Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that your presence, in which there is fullness of joy, your presence would be felt and experienced by us continually, daily, as you lead us forward in all of this and teach us just to trust you and to abide in you and to be with you. Lord, this is what we need. And so I pray, help us abide. In Jesus' name, amen.